This episode of Consuming Creativity contains strong language and descriptions of violent and graphic imagery, including violence towards children and pregnant women. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome. And sit a little closer on this cold November evening. Look out of the window and tell me what do you see? Nothing? What about there? Just out of the corner of your eye. Are you sure there's nothing? What is it that lurks just out of sight, hidden in the shadows, pressing and scratching at the door to come in? Maybe it's nothing. Or maybe it just might be the clue to what happened in the possession of David O'Reilly. My name, as always, is Chris. And this is Consuming Creativity. The Possession of David O'Reilly is a low-budget horror film released in 2010. Written and directed by Andrew Cull, the film follows a young couple, Alex and Kate, as their quiet evening in is interrupted by their friend David, who's going through a breakup. As David begins to overstay his welcome, the couple find out that he's convinced that demonic monsters are lurking just beyond the flat and are trying to cut him down. The film is, overall, fairly well made, though I only truly mean that in regard to the technical aspects of the film. The cinematography is unique and sometimes baffling, but it's effectively done. The acting is genuinely quite impressive, and considering the small location and the inability to rely on complex graphics or expensive effects, the film manages to achieve a truly claustrophobic and panicked atmosphere throughout. Where the film falls down is in two main areas in my opinion, its plot and its ambiguity. I feel the need to preface this by saying that ambiguity in fiction isn't a bad thing. My favourite piece of literature in human history is The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which is spectacular in its ability to walk the fine line of the ambiguous, but it's very easy to confuse ambiguity with lazy storytelling. The possession of David O'Reilly falls squarely in the second camp, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning and see where we end up. The film begins by introducing us to our main characters, a young couple named Alex and Kate played by Nicholas Shaw and Zoe Richards, respectively. They have a nice, quiet night in, have dinner, watch TV, fall asleep on the sofa. A normal date night in, I suppose. Alex wakes up first, leaving Kate to sleep for a little while, until she begins talking in her sleep, saying, don't open it, a few times. This will come up later, but please don't have any kind of high expectation. David has arrived, looking a little frantic, somewhat dishevelled, and generally not in a good place. It's the middle of the night, he's arrived unannounced, so that's not really a surprise, but obviously Alex lets him into the flat, concerned. He explains that his girlfriend, Sarah, has been cheating on him, and he found out by finding some photographs of her where she is undressed, clearly with another man. David is very distressed, Alex is supportive, Kate gives them space. So far, so good. Nothing much to complain about, really. Even at this early stage, one thing's pretty clear. The film is shot on location, and it looks like with a 30mm lens. I don't know for sure about the focal length, but I've seen and made enough student films shot with that kind of tight, claustrophobic camera angle to know that they're doing the best they can in a space that's not at all designed for filming. It's a little distracting at first, but honestly the camera work isn't too disorientating and does help lend to the atmosphere. It's just a shame that the entire film has the same tight and close shooting style and doesn't have any variations in framing to match the rising and falling tension. Alex eventually goes to bed, leaving David alone. David begins doing some rather weird things, 
namely looking out of the window a little obsessively, as though looking for something. There are a lot of long, lingering shots of absolutely nothing. I presume these are there to try and build tension, but honestly it begins to feel a lot like padding after the fourth or fifth one of these. There's nothing interesting in what they're doing, and they use them so randomly it feels completely out of place. The shots range from a lingering shot out through the back window, to the camera looking into an empty room after someone has left, to shots of the flat from outside for about 15 seconds too long. Which doesn't sound terrible until you realise just how long that is. Seriously, I'm going to be silent for 15 seconds. At that length of time, with a shot of absolutely nothing and using it over and over again, it gets ridiculous. David begins to get scared by something he sees outside, moving away from the back door, panicked. He moves into a side room, back room, some other kind of room, it isn't clear, but I have to admit the sound design here is nice. The way the sound of his panicked breathing builds up is nicely done, and manages to convey a rising tension without anything else actually happening at all. The scene ends with a cut to black and then a slow fade in to the morning light with David still in the same spot. Wait, what just happened there? Did David fall asleep? Did he somehow skip the entire night glitch in the Matrix style? What happened to whatever he was scared of that was outside? How do you just not resolve that or tell the audience what happened? This is where the film begins to show its dark underbelly, but we'll come to that at the end. I'll take a short time out here since it seems appropriate to talk about the first person shots in the film. I genuinely couldn't decide whether or not to discuss these shots at all, but I feel like I have to. When I first watched this film in 2013, it was because I found it on a list of found footage horror films, and at the time I had a bit of an obsession with the found footage genre, and I wanted to explore it. Let me tell you now, this is a piss poor example. The first person shots are random, there seems to be no logic to it, and it doesn't make sense why we get first person shots from some characters, but not others. It makes no sense, it's jarring, and it's a complete misfire directorially. I'll try not to bring them up again, because unlike the director, I don't want to waste your time. The next day is somewhat skipped over, though we do find out that David has a notebook in which he has written, They're coming, I can feel them, biding their time. Yep. That's right, we're 23 minutes into the film and David is full-on paranoia city centre already. If you are hoping for subtlety with your main course of ambiguity, I'm afraid this film is all out. David gets some silent phone calls which are a nice touch, seemingly showing the inevitability of whatever is coming for him and the patience that this unseen force seems to have. It's nice, it lends to the paranoia well, and it does its job. It's not amazingly original, but I'll take it. During the day, we meet Anna the pregnant woman who lives in the flat upstairs. David answers the door to her, which is completely normal. Whenever I'm at my friend's flats, I'd love to answer the door while they're sleeping. Maybe that is normal, I don't know, but I still find it weird. This film is set in Britain, and in Britain, if you wake up before your host, you lie perfectly still until they come to wake you up, at which point you immediately pretend they came in at exactly the right time to watch you reach wakefulness. It is the British way. Weirdly, Anna says that she came down to tell them something, but she can't remember what it is. Yes, this comes up later, but what an absolutely boring conversation. I came here to tell you something, forgot what it is, but I guess I'll still knock on your door, waking you up even though I have absolutely no bloody idea why I'm doing it. Yes, that makes so much sense. That evening, David is looking out the window again, and this time we finally get to see the creature, demon, 
the whatever it is that's outside the flat. The creature effects honestly are quite good. I think this was the height of the indie horror film creature effects boom, so it's not really a big surprise there. The creature acting? That leaves a lot to be desired. The creature just sort of stands there. Yep, you heard me right. This creature that David is terrified of just stands there, watching him through the window. Yes, terrifying. David has a conversation with Alex that feels a little strange and disjointed. At times it sometimes feels like they're having different conversations. It might just be David feeling out the situation to see if he wants to risk telling Alex what he's seeing, or it might be the writer not knowing what to fill this space with and just putting dialogue in for the sake of it. Either interpretation kind of works. David looks out the window and sees something panicking him, so Alex looks for himself. We do have a few more first-person shots here, but don't worry, I won't berate the director over them a second time. I do want to ask the question though whether or not we can trust these first-person viewpoints. Maybe I should explain what I mean. In some films, and in fact in most books, the third-person viewpoint can sometimes shift into first-person very briefly to get inside a character's head and give us a direct understanding of their thoughts and experiences in that moment. In books this is mostly done through what the character is thinking, whereas in films it's used to show us what they're looking at or what they're seeing. These moments are usually used to show something factual, something undeniably true. But in this film, we get first-person viewpoints from Alex and from David. Shots that seem to conflict. Earlier, our first-person view through David into the garden showed us the creature. This time, through Alex, we see... nothing. David definitely sees something in the garden, but Alex doesn't. So what does this mean about the first-person viewpoint? Is David really seeing something, or is he delusional? Is Alex in denial, or is there nothing there? Who knows? David sees the creatures moving inside the flat this time, in the back corridor, by the door to the garden. His scream is miraculous. But again, I have to wonder, the creatures on the other side of the door, the fact that we as the audience can see the shadows, does that mean they're real? Does that mean he isn't crazy? What about Alex's first person shots? He didn't see anything. None of it adds up yet. Alex calms David down and talks to him, so David finally explains everything but by now he has really come undone. He begins sentences and then stops talking randomly, eyes fixated on the window, standing up as though he forgot what he was talking about and goes to the window looking out, and then just continues talking as though nothing had happened. It's jarring, stilted and strange, and yet somehow the actor, Giles Anderson, makes it work. I believe his betrayal of David and that's quite impressive. His dialogue, however, is dire. At one point he randomly asks Alex, you don't believe in God, do you? And then goes on a kind of diatribe about God and devils and if one exists then surely the other one must, but he's seen demons and God has abandoned him, blah blah blah. It never comes up again. He drops it and it's over. Kate sits in the bedroom looking at David's notebook. We get to see a lot more of it now, including pencil drawings of the creatures outside the window. She gets more and more concerned flipping through the pages until she finds a pencil drawing that looks kind of like her. It might be her? Honestly, I'm not sure if it's her. Either way, in the drawing, behind whoever it is, there's more of the misshapen people looming threateningly and then suddenly the power goes out. Or at least that's what they wanted me to think happened. I mean, the characters definitely say the power went out, but honestly that's not how I felt. 
The camera cuts to darkness, but there's no audio to accompany it. This is one of those rare instances where I will advocate for the falseness of cinema. A real power cut is silent, I know that, you know that, everyone knows that, lights just suddenly go out and you're left in darkness. But in films it's less simple. In films you get the sound of a power cut, whether that's a fizzing of electrical cables dying or the pop of the power cutting out something. There's always an audio cue accompanying it. Without that cue it honestly feels like they just cut to a dark room, which considering the way it seemed to just randomly jump to the morning the night before, it wouldn't be out of place in this film. Kate, Alex and David flee the flat in panic, with Alex sounding a little bit like he might be worried that David might harm Kate in his panic, especially considering David is now armed with a knife. When they reach the hallway of the building, Alex seems to lean more in the direction of possibly believing David. It's hard to tell, which is nice, playing into the ambiguity a bit more. Kate asks Alex if he actually saw anything, and he says that he isn't sure. More panic ensues when David opens the flat door to check if they are in the flat seeming to fight with some kind of entity on the other side of the door. The three of them run upstairs to the upper floor and somehow get separated? I mean, how? How do you get separated going up a single flight of stairs? The flat is in the ground floor of a Victorian house conversion, at least so far as we've seen so far. Which means one flat on the ground floor, one flat upstairs, and maybe a studio or something on the upper floor? But how on earth can you get separated going up a single flight of stairs? I don't get it. David ends up in the flat of the neighbour we met earlier, Anna, and there are some nice elements in this sequence. When David met Anna previously, he did mention the encounter to Alex, who makes an offhand comment that he didn't know anyone had moved in, and he had thought they were still renovating the flat upstairs. Now that David is actually in the flat, we can see that Alex was right. The background of the flat has a lot of decorating equipment. David doesn't seem to notice this, and obviously neither does Anna, but some of the shots feel almost overtly pointing it out, so I'd be a little bit surprised if someone didn't notice this discrepancy. It's a nice element, but it's handled with the same subtlety as, well, everything else in the film. Suddenly, the creature tries to break in, forcing Anna and David to flee. They manage to get into another room and barricade the door to stop it coming in, and we get a huge number of POV shots jumping around as they run from the monster. It's actually disorientating more than it is tense. And that's not even mentioning the fact that this is supposed to be a chase scene, and yet the monster barely moves above a shamble. I wouldn't mind that it's slow, Romero did some fantastic work with his revenants in The Night of the Living Dead and the slow, inexorable march of the inevitable, but this sequence is clearly shot to make you feel like the monster is fast, even though it's painfully obvious that, well, it isn't. It falls really flat. Anna suddenly remembers why she knocked on the flat door that morning. Are you excited? Are you anticipating something amazing, revelatory and magical? Are you? Well, don't. She remembers what she came down to tell them is, run. Yep, that's it. She was going to tell them to run. Wasn't that worth the fucking build up? We then find out through a series of annoying shots of newspaper articles, yes, that's right, the film makes you read multiple headlines all saying the same thing, that Anna is actually a woman called Eileen whose boyfriend cut her open and removed her unborn baby. Both of them died. She suddenly starts bleeding everywhere, immediately remembering what happened at the same time that David happens to find the newspaper articles. Let's slow down right here and take a look at the blaring problems in this scene. Number one, what does any of this have to do with the weird monsters outside? Number two, why is the flat covered in articles all covering the same crime? Three, is any of this even real or has David just gone crazy? 
Number four, is she a ghost? A zombie? Hallucination? Any other guess? Number five, if you're going to use body horror, understand what body horror is about first. Let's focus in on that last one, since this is not the only film that does body horror poorly. So what is body horror? Body horror really is horror that comes from the innate fear of losing control over your own anatomy and from unnatural things happening to yours or someone else's body. Good examples of this are the xenomorph reproduction cycle in Alien, the gender identity mutilations in The Skin I Live In, and the unnatural mutation of the human form in The Thing. The one thing good body horror has at its core is that the fear stems from a loss of control. The possession of David O'Reilly has all the trappings of body horror. The creatures are mutated, shambling, mangled human shapes. Anna slash Eileen bleeding from her pregnant belly and down her legs. These are all body horror staples, but without any of the psychological damage that needs to support those gory visuals. David, horrified by the gore and misplaced ghost stuff, begins screaming loudly and we cut to Alex and Kate who begin to follow the sound of his screaming to find him. Or at least I think that's what they're doing, I mean I assume that's what they're doing, but since the sound of David's screaming gets no louder at any point, they might just be looking for a way out. They open the door and actually do find David, and the three of them decide to go back to the flat, because apparently everything is okay again and there's nothing in the flat? I mean going back to the flat they find… nothing. Even David seems calmer about going back into the flat, despite being completely convinced that the creatures were inside and acting as though they won't give up or relent ever. Except apparently they've given up for today and everything's fine. Let's not worry about explaining that at all, I guess. Alex and Kate have a conversation about David. Kate definitely wants David to leave and Alex thinks that's being too harsh. Kate still has David's notebook and she shows it to Alex. She's insistent that she wants David gone. Alex seems to reluctantly agree. It's a really nice human conversation that shows the difficulty of the situation, the compassion and concern, and it really lays the whole situation out so you can see both sides. Well, you can forget about that entire scene. The notebook never comes up again, no one asks David to leave, Alex doesn't convince Kate to let him stay, and everyone forgets that this conversation even happened. Aren't you glad you wasted those five minutes? We start getting some more POV shots, but this time from Alex. I know I said I'd try not to talk about them again, but is this supposed to be saying that whatever happened to David is happening to Alex now, or is it trying to say something else? Or is it saying nothing and is just a weird gimmick for the sake of a weird gimmick? There's even a point where a shot begins as a first person POV, and then it pulls back as Alex steps into the frame, becoming a third person shot again. I mean, what the hell is the point in these first person shots if they have no purpose and you just add in a random transition like that with no context? David is in the kitchen, alone, with a newspaper and a glass, which spontaneously starts working like a Ouija board. Yep, that's right, David seems to be getting messages from the beyond. There is absolutely no indication where the messages come from, whether it's the demon things outside, from Anna slash Eileen upstairs, from David himself, or even from Sarah, David's girlfriend, which, since the glass spells out her name, I can only assume we're supposed to realise that she's dead but I've got no idea if it's supposed to mean that the creatures killed her, or she killed herself, or David killed her, or she died from exposure to terrible writing, I don't even know. There's a section of Alex and Kate looking at motion camera footage, which is nice, as it gives a bit of a payoff on the overt setup of the cameras from the beginning of the film. It was quite heavy-handed when the idea of the motion cameras was brought up, 
I mean, it was so painfully obvious that they were going to come up again later, and it's exactly what you expect. Something set off the cameras during the night, no one can see what it is, blah blah blah. It's alright, nothing magically unique. I mean, the conversation of Alex over-explaining the cameras is quite pedantic, even for 2010, when this kind of technology wasn't unusual at all. The tape isn't really that interesting, it's just a shadow moving through the room. whoop de fucking do Alex then hears something outside and begins looking through the window. Is he beginning to give in to the same delusions as David, or is he just able to see and hear them now? Who knows? I mean, I don't. Let's just hope that we can get to the end of this with a minimum of fuss. Just when we thought Alex might be confirming David's visions, as David goes to investigate the back of the flat again, something smacks up against the glass of the door. This is not a POV shot, it is not ambiguous, something definitely hits the glass. Except Alex, who was looking in that exact direction and only half a metre behind David, didn't see anything, asking David what happened, so I have to assume that the creatures aren't real. This will become annoying later, I hope you're ready, we are on the home stretch. David suddenly decides they have to turn the lights off in order to see the creatures. I mean, nothing up until this point has leaned in that direction, in fact we've seen them moving toward lit areas in full view. In fact, in the last scene with the creature banging up against the glass door, that was in a fully lit room. But anyway, David suddenly decides that's how the creatures work, so we have a couple of scenes in complete darkness where we can't see anything, presumably the characters can't see anything, and nothing actually really happens. Kate eventually has had enough of this bullshit and turns the light on, telling David she can't see or hear anything. Alex, who by this point is now completely on team who needs reality anymore, decides to threaten Kate with a knife to turn the light off again. Any illusions of Alex being the middle of the road viewpoint are now completely gone. That is until Alex and Kate decide that they should try leaving the flat, Kate to get the fuck away from David, quite rightly so, and Alex because he doesn't want to stay in the flat if the creatures are already inside. As Alex tries to open the flat door, David rushes him to keep it closed and Alex is stabbed in the back. Honestly, the moment's quite nice. Alex reacts immediately, but his reaction is expressive and silent. It really conveys the shock of the situation, the completely unexpected nature of it, and I have to commend the actor for his facial expressions. I've never been stabbed, and I'm lucky enough to have never witnessed someone be fatally stabbed, but the way he acts the scene is exactly how I would imagine it to go. When David removes the knife, however, there is literally no blood on the knife. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't need Tarantino levels of gore to make the scene work, but the knife comes out almost completely bone dry. It just doesn't make sense. Kate hides in the living room and David goes a little bit mad, looking at the pictures of Sarah, except the sheets of paper are now completely black. Chalk that up to whatever the fuck point is. I guess they're definitely hitting the David is crazy and none of this is real drum loud and proud. Kate eventually tries to escape through the window, but David bursts in and tries to stop her. They struggle. David is suffocated by some random plastic sheeting they happen to have in the living room, and it seems that the situation is resolved. Kate finds Alex, but of course, he's dead. She has a nice moment of denial, unable to accept that he's dead, and she says that she'll go and get help. She stands up, reaches for the door latch, and stops. She whispers, don't open it, harkening back to the beginning of the film, before opening the door and stepping through. We get a short couple of shots showing Kate, laying dead in the hallway of the building, clothes torn, blood dripping, eyes wide and dead. And that's the end of the film. I'm not kidding, that's where the film ends. 
No explanation, no conclusion. After seeming to finally settle on the idea that David was crazy, suddenly Kate is just dead without warning. Was David actually still alive? Were the creatures real? Was Eileen's boyfriend come back just for the sake of fucking shit up a bit more? Who knows? I definitely don't. I wish I had anything to say about what this film means, what the conclusions were, or what the story was even about. There are so many parts of the film that defy explanation, from the strange POV shots through to the fact that Kate is apparently psychic, but terrible at taking her own advice. I mean, why say don't open it knowing that you said that a few nights ago in your sleep, and then not listen to your own advice and walk through the door immediately afterwards anyway? I don't really think there's much that I can say in defense of the film, except to say that the actors are clearly trying their best with an absolutely terrible script. They gave good performances, all things considered, and I genuinely believe them as characters throughout, even if the writing let them down and gave them unbelievable actions and motivations at times. The writing and direction is completely and utterly distressing to look at. I think there were a number of alright ideas, nothing insanely unique, but I don't think the writer had any idea how to bring those disparate elements together. The random side plot of Anna slash Eileen in the flat upstairs is one of the single worst decisions that could have been made. I wish they'd spent more time expanding on David and his delusions, giving me more to sink my teeth into but at best it becomes this superficially ambiguous insanity story. At its worst, it's a complete wreck of a script with no direction, no understanding or conclusion, and no idea where the hell it's going. I cannot recommend this film, and I don't mind that I've spoiled it for you, because I've saved you 80 minutes of distress. But if you do have an interest in horror, it might be worth suffering through, for no other reason than to see how not to make a film. So thank you for indulging me on this horrendous journey. I hope you were suitably horrified that this film ever got the green light, and that you go to bed tonight scared that you might one day be forced to sit through this travesty of filmmaking. As always, find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and stop by our website for more information, consumingcreativity.com. If you want to support the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash consuming underscore creativity for more information, or head to consumingcreativity.com and click on the donate button. We are excited to announce that we're putting our money where our mouth is. As a podcast that critiques and criticizes fiction from across the spectrum, we've decided to share some creations with you for you to give us the same treatment. We've launched a new blog exploring various types of creative endeavor, including world building, running a role-playing game, live action role-playing, fiction writing, and more. Be sure to check it out and give us your feedback with both barrels. You can find the blog at 15minutesofgame.co.uk. That's 15minutesofgame.co.uk. Consuming Creativity is a proud member of the Project Headphones Network, and we would love for you to go and check out the rest of the amazing works being produced. Head to projectheadphones.com for more information. I can highly recommend the new actual play D&D series, Hedge. Join a cosy little one-on-one 5th edition campaign with a quirky Studio Ghibli feel. And join me at the end of November, and we'll be looking at something a little differently. Instead of looking at one fictional work, we'll look at two versions of the same work the novella and film adaptation of A Clockwork Orange. Spoilers for both. If you want to get ahead of the game, check out the links in the show notes to grab a copy and support the show. So enjoy the weird, twisted, dystopian future dreamed up by Anthony Burgess, 
and next time we'll be exploring how a slight omission in the telling of a story can change the entire meaning.